0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Devraga Personal Finance Episode 77. And in this episode, we'll discuss the term P-E ratio, or price-to-earnings ratio, and we'll also go into the detail about some subtopics. In Episode 78, we'll then go on and discuss other company stock fundamentals, such as price-to-book ratio and return on equity. For those of you that are new to the channel, the aim of this channel is to educate, empower, and entertain. Now, just a disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor, I'm not an accountant, I'm not a lawyer, nor am I a financial planner. Make sure you take any financial decisions you make to your appropriate advisors. Don't make it after listening to some random guy chattering away on a podcast episode. If you're stuck on what to do, here are some simple things to get you in the right track when it comes to investing, saving, and personal finance in general. In my humble view, there are five easy steps which anybody could follow. Step one, pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside. That is your money, your hard-earned money that you've worked very hard for. Step two, invest that money, ideally into something you understand or want to understand. For me, I understand the stock market, so I just invest in index funds. Step three, reinvest those dividends, never cash them out. The power of compounding is real. Step four, do it for the long term, not five, ten or even fifteen years. You need a sustainable way of doing it for twenty, thirty, forty, if not even fifty years plus. And my favourite, step five, automate. Automating this process means you're less likely to make mistakes, you're more likely to follow the plan and you're more likely to do it for the long term. Remember, time in the market is far more powerful than timing the market. If you did these, you're more likely to have more money than you'd ever need, ever. And money is just a tool. It doesn't bring happiness, and you can use it as a tool to make your life better, but most importantly, the lives of people around you better. Now, over the last few weeks, I've had a few people contact me in the past to explain how it's been very difficult to gather up cash to invest early in their life. But now, they've got a lot more money to invest, so should they start investing? Now, to me, I think that's slightly dangerous. I think that you should start investing as soon as you have any money. You shouldn't wait. You shouldn't wait until the market tanks. You shouldn't wait until a year from now. You shouldn't wait until you become a consultant surgeon or consultant physician or an engineer or a lawyer. If you've got a part-time job at Mackers and you're earning, you know, 10, 15 bucks an hour and you've got, you know, spare money to invest, that is a good time to invest. It doesn't matter how much money you have to invest, you just need to start somewhere. Start early and time is the most important element in addition to annual return on your investment. Now, I'm going to use a very powerful example to show you why starting early is very important. So, if you're a high school student, and I know some of you are, and if you're a med student, I know some of you have contacted me recently, listen up. This is very, very relevant. Two sisters, Amy and Lisa. Again, if you've heard the story before, please bear with me because I'm trying to encourage young people to invest. Two sisters, Amy and Lisa. Amy starts saving money at the age of 19 during her first year of university. She pays herself $2,000 per year from her part-time job. Amy does this all the way up until the age of 26, inclusive. So from age 27, Amy puts in no more money into her savings, nor does she invest another cent. So Amy has saved and invested for a period of only 8 years, so Amy's total savings over those 8 years is $16,000. $16,000. By age 27, Amy finishes her university degree, gets a decent job, and again, never invests ever again. Lisa, her sister on the other hand, notices that Amy has saved so much money during her university days, so gets motivated eventually and starts saving $2,000 per year and starts investing at the age of 27. The difference here is that Lisa is eight years behind the eight ball. Now, let's fast forward to age 65 and see what happens. Remember, Amy stopped investing or saving after the age of 26 inclusive, whereas Lisa is going to put $2,000 per year from the age of 27 up until the age of 65. So let's see what happens, and let's assume an annual rate of return of 9%, which is not, you know, unrealistic in today's market. So at age 65, Amy, who's put in only $16,000, ends up with $688,464, whereas Lisa, who's put in $76,000, ends up with $618,133 at retirement. So Amy, who only invested for eight years and never contributed a single cent after the age of 26, ended up with more money at retirement. What would have happened if Amy continued to contribute $2,000 annually to an investment since age 19 until retirement? How much money would Amy have ended up with? She would have ended up with more than twice the amount. She would have had $1.253 million. So in other words, she ends up with more than double what Lisa ends up with. That is the power of starting early. This is why you must start paying yourself and investing today. Waiting to invest is costing you money, literally. Now, I hope that clarifies why starting now, starting today, as early as you can, is the most important thing you can do. So, if you're a high school student who's got a part time job, if you're a university student that's got a part time job, start saving. Start investing, start paying yourself, because I know some of you have contacted me asking me, hey, look, market's slow. should I invest? Hey, look, I've only got a small amount of cash to invest in. That's okay. Forget about the market, just invest, because every dollar that you invest today can grow to potentially $20, $30, or even $40 during your retirement. So that's my little rant. On people that ask when is a good time to invest the good time to invest is when you have no consumer debt and when you have disposable income start investing and start paying yourself I can't stress that enough now to the main topic what is the price to earnings ratio or price multiple that's the other way of also saying it or the PE ratio and why is it important um, taking into account a company's PE ratio considered part of the fundamental analysis process before buying a company's stock. Now, all of you know, I'm not an active investor. I don't look for PE ratios or PB ratios or earnings per shares because that's active investing. So this episode is mainly designed for people that are interested in active investing. I don't actively invest. I don't have time. My expertise in medicine, I really can't be bothered looking at it. But if you're interested in this sort of metrics, I thought I'd make a couple of episodes uh, about it because it might come in handy for you. So a PE ratio is one way to value a company and is often used to Used by active investors before they buy stocks in a company. You can use this ratio also to look at indices as well. So if you have a look at the Vanguard indices, they have a PE ratio as well, but of course, that's across the whole stock market. I've done an episode comparing active versus passive investing. Now, if you don't understand that concept, go back to episode 9. It's very worthwhile to revise that topic if you're still looking at various methods of investing. There are various methods of investing. I tend to follow the passive method. In short, active investing is when an investor analyzes the company's value, maybe looks at their prospectus, annual statements, and comes to a conclusion on whether its stock is worth buying or not. The formula then for price to earnings ratio then becomes the price of the share divided by the earnings per share. The price of the share is its trading price. The earnings per share is the completely separate figure. You've got to be careful not to confuse or conflate those two together. They're completely separate figures. So let's have a look at how we can derive at the earnings per share, which is the denominator, because without deriving that, you cannot derive a PE ratio. So what is earnings per share? Put simply, it's the company's profit divided by the total number of outstanding shares. Shares of its common stock. It's a way to analyse a company's profitability. So the higher the number, the more profitable a company is. That kind of makes sense. If you have a higher earnings per share, your profitability is higher. Let's use an example to calculate the earnings per share of company X. Let's say company X has 500 million shares in circulation. The total profit for the 2019 financial year was $100 million. Therefore, the earnings per share is net profit, which is $100 million, divided by 500 million shares, which is around Twenty cents per share. Now, if you read the media articles, particularly around the quarterly earnings report, etc., the earnings per share is often features heavily um, in one of the metrics of analysis of a uh, of, of a company. So, you know, the quarter's just finished, March thirty first I- in Australia. So, if you read some of the prospectus and and some of the company balance sheets, the the P/E ratio, the earnings per share keeps coming up again and again and again. So, it's probably worthwhile putting that into practice if you want to analyze companies. Actively. So the earnings per share in this particular case is 20 cents per share. Now, generally speaking, it's net profit of the company, it's not gross profit. Um, to be more strict, it's actually net profit uh, after dividends have been taken out. So, technically, the formula then becomes net profit minus dividends divided by the common outstanding shares, which is usually at the end of the financial year or end of the quarter, etc okay that is called earnings per share but more specifically that is called basic EPS or basic earnings per share now what is diluted earnings per share well diluted earnings per share is if the company's capital comes from common shares which you and I can buy warrants options and I've talked about this previously in my derivatives episode if all of these were exercised all at once then it could actually mean the circulating number of shares becomes diluted. There's more shares. Therefore, there is more shares hanging around, and this is the dilution effect, which means the earnings per share can be reduced. Now, when all of these diluted shares are also taken into account when calculating earnings per share, this is called diluted earnings per share. So let's use a previous example that we used and calculate the diluted earnings per share for company X. So we calculate earnings per share to be about 20 cents, which is the basic EPS. But let's now assume there is an additional 50 million shares which could be available if all of the obligations are exercised, warrants, options, etc. So the total share pool now becomes 500 million plus 50 million. So 550 million. Therefore earnings per share then becomes a 100 million the same profit divided by not 500 million shares but now it's 550 million shares so therefore the earnings per share which is diluted is 18 cents. So can you see how the diluted EPS is now less than the basic EPS. So that means that earnings per share can be manipulated. Could it not? Now, we've learned that if a company has a high earnings per share, that's generally a good thing, but looking at earnings per share alone is not going to be all or end all because it can be manipulated. So, let's use some examples how EPS can be affected and can be manipulated by some companies, particularly if they're trying to get more capital out of you, the potential investor. So, Company X is owned by its parent company, Company A. Company A notices that Company X is sitting on prime land, so they transfer the manufacturing plant to another location and sell the land associated with Company X. This nets them about $50 million in addition to the $100 million profit that they've made. So for that year, their profit now becomes $150 million. Therefore, the new EPS becomes $150 million divided by... $500 $500 million. Now I'm not calculating the diluted EPS here, I'm calculating the basic EPS. So therefore now the earnings per share becomes $0.30. Cents. Notice how the EPS jumps from $0.20 cents before to $0.30, cents because the company has sold off its prime land which is worth $50 million which then gets added on to the profit, which now becomes $150 million from the original $100 million. So, This is how earnings per share can be manipulated. But company X or company A with the parent company can't replicate this every year. They can't keep selling prime land. They don't have prime land associated with all of their subsidiaries. So this is called EPS excluding extraordinary items. In other words, if um, company X, for example, uh, plant equipment had a major fault... It reduces its ability to manufacture the items, which reduces its profit for that year, and this creates an artificially lower profit, which therefore means earnings per share suffers, and it's lower. So these events are called extraordinary events. You can't replicate them every single year, and therefore need to be factored into account when analysing earnings per share. So when you're looking at a prospectus, when you're looking at a balance sheet, and go, oh, earnings per share was, you know, $0.50 cents in 2018, now it's only $0.20. Cents. Well, that could be because they've had a manufacturing crisis. Or if you're looking at an earnings per share, which was $0.20, cents, and now it's $2, that could be because they've actually sold some of their assets to artificially increase their profit. So these events are called extraordinary events, and you need to be careful about how you interpret EPS. Now, what happens to companies that reduce the number of outlets, for example, but continue to operate? How will earnings per share be affected? That's called EPS from ongoing operations. So let's use an example, McDonald's. McDonald's, I think, in Australia has about three, three and 3,500 stores. Let's just make it 3,000 stores across Australia. Let's say they decide to close about 500 stores this year because those stores were operating at a loss. Before they closed five hundred stores, let's say their EPS was $1.50. dollar fifty. The person who wants to buy McDonald's stock, we want to know what their EPS is going to be with their ongoing operations. That is, what will the EPS be with stores being only twenty five hundred, not three thousand? Notice that the EPS, if you only took account of the 2,500 stores, which are currently profit-making, will be higher than if you took into account their entire store profile of 3,000 stores. Remember, they've closed 500 stores, which were loss-making. So in essence, the EPS may look better now after closure of stores when compared to just before stores were closed. So the moral here is... You need to look at before and after operations have been changed. This is likely buried in the annual performance report somewhere. So again, an example of how EPS can be distorted. So can investors access the EPS? If I was an investor, can I have a piece of the pie? Can I have a bit of the earnings per share? Well, yes, if the company pays out dividends. And this is why dividends are really important, in my view but not the only important thing to look for in a company prior to investing. During shareholder meetings and board of directors meetings, the company makes a decision based on how much of the earnings per share they're willing to give to the investors as dividends. So the example I used before with company X earning $0.20 per share, they may choose to give out a dividend of $0.02 per share out of the $0.20 per share earnings. This means the company retains $0.18 per share in earnings, which can be reinvested into the company and hopefully grow the company in the hope the following year the earnings per share is even higher. Now my next episode when I'll talk about ROE, return on equity, I'll talk about retention ratio and payout ratio. So stay tuned for that one. We'll go into a little bit more detail in that episode. So can earnings per share be the same for two companies but their stock prices be widely different? And the answer is yes. It is completely possible for two companies to have the exact same earnings per share, but of completely different share prices. And lastly, earnings per share can be trailing, that is the previous 12 months, or forward-looking, estimated for the next 12 months or whatever period that you're looking for. So this brings us back to the original topic of PE ratios. Remember, the denominator is the earnings per share. The P-E ratio, let's revisit a little bit, uh, is the price of the share divided by the earnings per share. And so far, we've talked about earnings per share. So this ratio, the P-E ratio, then allows an apples-for-apples comparison between companies. And usually, it's very good to compare P-E ratios within the same type of companies or the same industry or the same sector, it's a bit unfair to compare the PE ratio across different sectors, but you may want to compare it across a stock market index, for example. So, if you're thinking about investing in a company that's got a PE ratio of 10 and the entire stock market index has a PE ratio of 14, then you can technically say that company is trading at a cheaper value compared to the entire stock market. You can't say that company is trading at a cheaper value in comparison to the other company because you don't know what the P ratio of the other company is. You're comparing it against the index. So let's use a real example. If I asked you which company is possibly a better deal between Woolies and West Farmers Group, it will be a struggle to come up with an answer without looking at some of their metrics. Now, the Woolworths Group, which includes Big W, BWS, Dan Murphy's, Seller Masters, Langton's, ALH Group, etc., is trading today at the time of recording, which is the May the 7th, 2020, at $31.91. Their dividend yield is 2.93%, which is 100% franked, and their earnings per share is $2.02. So their P.E. ratio is $31.91 divided by 2 dollars and two, which is around 17.38. That's their P-E ratio. Now, let's compare that to the West Farmers Group, which owns Bunnings, Coles, Kmart, Target, catch.com.au, Officeworks, Geeks2U, various chemical companies, industrial safety companies, flybys. I mean, the list goes on, and these are big, big corporations in Australia. Their share price is trading at $36.40, and their dividend yield is 4.17% at 100% franked. The EPS is $1.92 and therefore their P.E. ratio is 19 So if you think Woolies and West Farmers, or Woolworths Group and West Farmers, sorry, is similar sort of retail companies, their P.E. ratio, you can say that West Farmers is trading at a higher P.E. ratio compared to Woolies Corporation. Now, these P-E ratio can change depending on the quarter, depending on the year. So if you have a look at earnings per share during the COVID-19 crisis, I mean, it's going to tumble. So, you know, retrospectively, you can say, well, this is a great time to buy things because things are on the cheap. Now, is a PE ratio worth it by itself? And the answer is not really. Sometimes a trend is far more important. Let's use an example. Woolworth's PE ratio in July 2019 was around 22.5. Westfarmers' PE ratio in July 2019 was around 23.05. So if I was analysing the stock, I could potentially say both of these companies are now trading at a lower price what their real value is. Now, remember, this is not constituting financial advice. I'm not asking you to go and buy Woolworth shares or Farmer shares, but you can see how the P.E. ratio comparison over 12 months can be very useful. Can an index fund have a P.E. ratio? And the answer is yes. This is where it can be very useful to compare a company's P.E. ratio to the entire index. So if you have investments in an index fund, which is just oil companies, and you want to compare the PE ratio of a particular oil company in relation to the oil index. That makes sense because you have a benchmark. So let's compare the current PE ratio of Woolies and West Farmers with the entire ASX 300 index fund, not just the sector, but the entire fund. Let's see how that works out. The Vanguard ASX 300 PE ratio, which I invest in, is the average of all the companies within it, is 14. So you can then say that West Farmers and Woolies, which are both trading at PE ratio of 19 and 17 respectively, are trading at a relatively more expensive rate than the average PE ratio of the entire ASX 300 index. So in other words, Woolworths and West Farmers are trading at a premium to the index. So a comparison is always useful in these settings. But what does the PE ratio actually mean? So, let's have a look at it. If Woolies have a PE ratio of 17, what does it actually mean? It means that an investor is willing to pay $17 for every dollar of current earnings, perpetually. Likewise, an investor is willing to pay $19 for West Farmer stock for a dollar of current earnings, perpetually. So there are several ways to interpret a P.E. ratio. It could mean investors are expecting higher returns growth in the future. This is if the P.E. ratio is high relative to its past. A low P.E. ratio may mean a company is currently undervalued relative to other companies, similar scale, similar size, or within the same industry. So a P.E. ratio can be used as a standardised value, which can be used as a comparison tool, uh, which can compare various companies, usually within a particular industry, but you can compare it to an index. So it's a great comparison tool. Can a PE ratio be invalid? Yes, this occurs if a company is making a loss or has no earnings. Remember, the P-E ratio can only really be calculated if you have earnings per share. If you don't have earnings per share, then your P-E ratio is not really valid. This means there is no P.E. ratio as the denominator of the equation is 0 or negative. So there is also another way of thinking about a P.E. ratio. Just to recap, if the P.E. ratio is 20, it means investors are happy to pay $20 for every dollar of current earnings. Remember, the earnings are perpetual, if all goes well, so a once-off $20 investment will return them a dollar forever or more, depending on how much earnings growth happens perpetually. But another way of looking at it is the inverse of the P.E. ratio, and this is called earnings yield. So if the P.E. ratio is 20, it means the earnings yield is 1 divided by 20, that is 5%. Now, within P.E. ratio, there's actually two different types. One is absolute. This is mainly the type of P.E. ratios we've been discussing in this episode. Essentially, it's the market stock price divided by the earnings per share, The earnings per share is usually the previous 12 months, that is the trailing earnings per share. It can also be the forward 12 months, which is called the estimated earnings per share. The relative PE ratio, this is when the PE ratio is compared to previous PE ranges the comparisons can occur over the past five years or 10 years or whatever time frame. It's usually a comparison to the highest P.E. ratio during that time frame. So if the highest P.E. ratio of a company five years ago was 30, but currently the P.E. ratio is 15, this means over that five-year period, the relative P.E. ratio is 50%. So if the relative P.E. ratio is greater than 100%, it means the current P.E. ratio has surpassed the previous P.E. ratios. But P-E ratios has its limitations. So let's talk about its limitations. Looking at the P-E ratio alone is not enough when it comes to stocks' fundamental analysis. Remember, the P-E ratio is designed to assist investors in deciding whether a stock is worth buying or not. But using it as a single metric is never enough to make the decision to buy a company stock or not. Now, people always talk about P-E ratios. Oh, the P-E ratio of this company is 100, or it's 50, or it's 20. That alone should not dictate your you know, uh, decision-making in terms of buying that company stock or not. It's a very dangerous thing to do by using just one metric. So this is just one metric that you need to analyze. There are other metrics that we'll talk about as well. Let's use an example. If a company is a technology company, for example, and is new to the scene, there is not, they're not going to be making much profit until some years down the track. Tesla hasn't really made a profit until recently. Their P.E. ratio was non-existent or even negative. But that doesn't mean the company wasn't valuable. That doesn't mean investors were not bullish on it for several years. But last quarter, they released a surprise profit, which I'm sure will be uh, you know, eroded by the next quarter due to the shutdown. But a company that didn't make a profit for many years has all of a sudden turned to profit, and their P.E. ratio is now 198. That is an incredibly high P.E. ratio. To compare this to the current P.E. ratio of the S&P 500 in America, which is 21. So Tesla is trading at 9.5 times what the entire S&P 500 index is trading at. So looking at P-E ratio alone is not good enough when it comes to stock fundamental analysis. Remember, the P-E ratio is designed to assist investors in deciding whether a stock is worth buying or not. But again, using a single metric is not useful. The P-E ratio is useful to compare companies within the same sector and industry, but it's not really useful across sectors or industries. This is because companies make money in various ways in other sectors. For example, comparing a technology company like Alphabet, which is largely in the business of software solutions, to a company like American Airlines, which is largely in the business of travel, is rather pointless. So the P-E ratio itself, and I stress this, does not take into account debt. You know my feeling about debt. I don't like it. So let's use an example to highlight how debt is not taken into account when P-E ratios are calculated. Remember, supposing there's two companies. One company does not have any debt, but as a result, they're not going to be using leverage, which means they're not taking risks, which means their profits are going to be less in comparison to a company that takes leverage. So refer to my episode 75 to learn about financial risk. So therefore, although this company makes a profit, it doesn't have any debt, it's probably not going to be that high. Another company has a huge debt and they've used this to their you know, best ability to make more money. So they've used leverage to make more profit, which is risky, but they've made it work. But it also comes with it more reward. So this company makes a much higher profit. Therefore, the company that is in debt is making huge profits and will have an artificially higher P-E ratio when compared to the company which doesn't have any debt and still makes a profit, albeit a lower one. So just using P-E ratio itself means the company with debt looks a lot better than the company with no debt, but the company with debt is also a lot riskier. So P-E ratio doesn't take into account debt. Now, the other thing about the P-E ratio is entirely dependent on the company releasing its profits and also earnings per share. If the company is not trustworthy, they may manipulate this information to artificially send out good news. We all remember what happened to Enron, which had a PE ratio of 55 just before it collapsed in 2001. Now, before I finish up this episode about P-E ratios, there is one other ratio which is very important – And that is price-to-earnings-to-growth ratio or PEG ratio or PEG ratio. So what is the PEG ratio? You take the PE ratio and divide it by the earnings growth. Let's use an example. Suppose company X has a PE ratio of 10. It has a 20% earnings growth. Therefore, the PEG ratio is 10 divided by 20. It's 0.5. If the PE ratio was 20 then the PEG ratio is 20 divided by 20, which is 1. Therefore, the higher the earnings growth, the lower the PEG ratio. This is a good thing. And the lower the PEG ratio, the more undervalued a company potentially is. And here are some basic numbers that you probably want to look at. If the PEG ratio is less than 1, it's an undervalued company. If the PEG ratio is 1 or PEG ratio is 1, it's a fair valued company. And if the PEG ratio is greater than one, it generally means it's an overvalued company. Now let's look at some of the values of a real-life index, such as the Vanguard ASX 300. The number of holdings it has is 313. Now, notice it actually holds more than 300 companies, and this is adjusted quarterly. The yield currently, as of the 7th of May, when this was recorded, is 5.4%. This is a high yield, then it's average of 4.1%. And this is likely because stocks have reduced in value. The index has fallen since its peak in Jan 2020. Remember, yield is a percentage of the share price. If the share price drops, your yield artificially rises. The PE ratio of the ASX 300 is 14. Compare this to the average ASX ratio being 15. November 1999, before the tech bubble the average P-E ratio was 23.2. Prior to the GFC, it was 15. And the lowest point in the GFC, March 2009, it was 8. January 2020, just prior to the COVID crisis, it was 20.05. So technically, you could say the Australian stocks are trading at the average of all time, but relatively lower than what they were trading at just five months ago. You can see how the P-E ratio fluctuates over the number of years. So the P-E ratio may decrease in the future. Uh, That doesn't really mean that it's a terrible, terrible time to invest. It just means that things may be cheaper than what they used to be. So it's a very, very relative number. You need to compare it to previous years and previous figures. The price-to-book ratio for the ASX 300 Vanguard is 1.6, and we'll talk about price-to-book ratio in the next episode. And the return to equity ratio, which you will also touch on in the next episode, is 13.55%. So that's about it. In this episode, we've talked about PE ratios, earnings per shares, PEG ratios, and a lot more. So I think it's really important that you learn about ratios in general, the three basic ratios, which is price to earnings, earnings per share, price to earnings to growth ratio, And remembering, of course, all of this is only used if compared to benchmarks. So if you own stocks, did you buy them after doing fundamental stock analysis and looking back at their P-E ratio? If not, go back and analyse now with the knowledge that you have and do some research and see if you paid too much or you got a bargain and take into account the earnings growth as well. In my next episode, as discussed, we'll discuss price to book ratio and return to equity ratio. So, thank you very much for listening, and thank you and shout out to all the people that have contacted me with their comments and questions. Um, like always, uh, sign up to the devaraga Personal Finance Facebook page where I put out some musings and articles and thoughts. Uh, and thank you very much for those that have liked and shared and also commented on those. Um, keep those questions coming. I like fielding questions, mostly via Facebook. Uh, I know some of you are constantly asking questions, which is fantastic because which means it forces me to answer them. It forces me to learn as well. So from your questions, remember, I'm also learning. So strangely, you're contributing to the uh, learning of me as well. So that's that's fantastic. Thank you very much for those that have suggested future topics. So there's more coming up. Uh, on that front, remember, share this episode and the Devraga Personal Finance uh, channel uh, via uh, to family and friends um, via castbox.fm app or Spotify or Google Podcast or directly via devraga.com. Um, and remember, always pay yourself first. Take 20% of your after-tax income and put it aside and put it aside into an investment that you want to learn or have learned or know what you're talking about when it comes to investment and next time you actively invest and remember i don't actively invest but if you want to do it i have nothing against it make sure you learn about p e ratio earnings per share and until next time always stay safe so thank you very much for listening this is dev Rugga, personal finance episode 77 and i'll see you in episode 78 thank you